You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Shane Harris. I'm a reporter here at The Post covering intelligence and national security. And I'm very happy today to be joined by Mikhail Zigar, the Russian journalist, uh, independent journalist, as you could tell from his introduction there, to talk about his new book, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Mikhail, thank you so much for joining us today uh, from Berlin. It's great to have you. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for having me. So as our introduction alluded to, I mean, this book is largely about um, what you describe as historical myths uh, that Putin and other Russian leaders have perpetuated and given rise to what you describe as this kind of Russian strain of fascism that is gripping the country right now. And, and it really is a very sweeping and very accessible view of a lot of this history that I think readers will appreciate. I, I want to start by just asking you, when you were young growing up in Russia, you know, as, as a child in school, what were some of the myths and these histories that, that you were taught uh, growing up by the adults and the authority figures in your life? You know, yeah, actually, I, uh, as a kid, I was growing in the Soviet Union. So you may imagine that the history I was taught um, um, was, was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a Soviet history. And uh, actually, I don't know why, but I was really annoyed with that um, approach of uh, Soviet supremacy. And uh, it's, it's not different from, uh, from uh, Russian uh, uh, students, Russian school children are being taught today, um, especially uh, since like two days ago, the new history textbook was was published, um, and it was revealed that uh, former Minister of Culture uh, Vladimir Medinsky has written a new history, a unified history textbook. So uh, it's going to be even much more propagandist, much worse when uh, than uh, that textbook uh, I was. Um, forced to read when I was a, a student in the uh, in the Soviet Union. But actually, I was I was ten when Soviet Union collapsed. So I was um, lucky enough uh, to live both lives and to witness uh, uh, both versions. I know that totalitarian version of uh, uh, of Soviet history of uh, history of Russian Empire, and I was witnessing how it was uh, it was being. Uh, analyzed uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union. And actually, we have started that uh, uh, going that way. We have started um, confessing and we have started uh, analyzing uh, the crimes of Russian imperialism. Uh, but then um, we unfortunately stopped on, on that way and we didn't finish uh, our job. So, mm -hmm. so this book is an attempt uh, to Probably to start uh, to start from the scratch because uh, after the war against Ukraine started, we I, a lot of people realized that uh, everything we've been doing was not enough. It's uh, just we should start from the scratch and we should uh, uh, try to understand that uh, a lot of things we were considering to be sacred um, are brutal, uh, and they they are killing uh, killing people uh, in other countries. Not in not only in Russia, but in, in neighboring countries as well. For for those people who who aren't familiar with some of the big strains and ideas and these myths in Russian history, so give us a sense of what the big ones are about 
you know, the founder oh, of yeah. Russia, its relation to Ukraine. What are some of the big ones that you write about in the book that that Russian people are, are sort of, you know, are used to hearing, but Americans might not know? Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, first, Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. Uh, that's the most um, the most popular Soviet myth. And uh, I start with it uh, in my book. Actually, it was uh, invented only 300 years ago. Uh, by a German monk who lived in Kiev, but in Soviet Union, everyone knew that, that that's like the only, uh, the, the one people, and uh, Ukrainian language, uh, that's another myth uh, uh, that was um, widespread in, Soviet, in the Russian Empire and in Soviet Union as well. So Ukrainian language does not exist, and it's just wrong Russian. Um, and that's ridiculous, but that's tragic that, for example, President Putin believes in that, uh, he uh, he truly thinks that uh, there is no Ukrainian language. Um, yeah, and there, there are lo lots of those uh, very imperialistic myths. Uh, there is a, like uh, the idea of Russian supremacy consists of uh, um, di different myths that actually Russia was not has never been a colonial empire. Russia is just a very generous country. We have never colonized anyone. We. Uh, Siberia or Ukraine or North Caucasus, they are just integral parts of Mother Russia. We are, we're only helping them, feeding them, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's that's terrible, pathetic, and uh, that's a shame that uh, people still believe that. You talked about when the Soviet Union ended, and you said you were 10 years old, so you were quite young. Was there a sense in Russia that a new day was opening and maybe these myths of the past would be put behind people? Or did they still loom very large, even in the post-Soviet imagination in Russia? No, you know, uh, actually until recently, uh, there was a huge um, historical debate, I would say, but um, actually Russian civil society was very developed and a lot of a lot of books, a lot of very good books have been written and published. A lot of archives um, have been opened. Um, recently, they have been closed, uh, shut down again, uh, especially KGB archives or military archives. But for most of 90s and partially uh, even in the beginning of, of Putin's presidency, the, the atmosphere in, uh, in um, academic institutions, in universities, um, sometimes in the media, was more or less free, so so it was possible to um, to speak about anything. Uh, actually, actually, all the archives about Stalin's repressions uh, are still open, and we know quite a, we know almost everything about um, about people uh, died in Gulag. We we were focusing for so many years on, uh, for example, crimes of Soviet Union, crimes of Stalin. But actually, we uh, we stopped. Um, we did not understand that it's not only about Stalin. It's not only about Soviet Union and um, and Stalin's crimes against Russians. It's uh, the roots are much more um, distant, uh, and the the evil is the Russian imperialism itself. And Talk actually, that's bit. the only. Sorry, yeah. that 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 that's the last step. We were we were never we have never been brave enough to address that issue because uh, there there are lots of very good books about crimes of uh, uh, different emperors, crimes of Stalin, but uh, um, rarely uh, Russian historians could speak about the the concept of Russian Empire as an evil. 
So talk about how you did the research for this book. I mean, you have a line in there where you, you a very compelling line where you talk about, it. it's almost like you're telling a, a crime story from the point of view of the criminal. And so you had to dive back into the histories and, and maybe ones that you had been you know, familiar with growing up. So talk a little bit about how you, the research for the book, um, because you really do go back to the beginning of a lot of this you know, understanding of Russian identity back several centuries. Yeah, first, I'd, uh, I'd like to, to, uh, to mention that the book actually consists of two parts. Uh, the first part is about the myths. It's about very ancient history. It starts from uh, 17th century. Um, and then uh, there are seven most, most important myths uh, uh, about R Ukraine and Russia. But the second book is uh, about the contemporary history, how all those myths are being used right now. It, it's actually about the recent um, 30 years and how President Putin was using all those myths, uh, how Ukrainians, uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, believed in all those myths. So it's uh, so and with, with the second part of the book, it's much more um, it's easier to understand. I've been reporting. I've been wor working in Ukraine all of those years. I've been traveling back and forth. I know personally most of uh, Ukrainian politicians. I interviewed all of the Ukrainian presidents, uh, six, five, six of them. Uh, most of the prime ministers, a lot of business leaders, a lot of uh, um, journalists, uh, sci uh, scientists. But yes, with, with the first part, with, uh, with the ancient history, that, that was much more complicated. Um, yes, I had to, I had to, um, to read a lot uh, from uh, from the classical Russian history, it's very um, it's very open and it's very uh, it's very easy to to, uh, to analyze if you are watching it uh, as a journalist uh, uh, with a, uh, like you know if you've got critical approach to your sources as any journalist is supposed to do. It's very easy to detect that uh, those historians are propagandists. And then, then you track um, who was their um, boss, who, whom they were working for. And actually, every time they were working for the power, um, uh, Nikolai Karamzin, who is considered to be the father of Russian historiography, was an um, official historiographer. He was working for the emperor, uh, Alexander I. And that happened uh, with all of them. And uh, when you're watching how they were changing and rewriting history, how they uh, were creating those artificial constructions to prove what uh, the emperor won or what uh, the secretary general of the, of the Communist Party wanted them to prove, um, it becomes very, uh, very interesting investigation. You, you just you see the fraud. And um, as, as a journalist, you, you are watching all those um, instruments and all those people who were uh, creating all that fraud uh, during the last uh, three centuries. Actually, it's not, it's not that hard. It, um, I didn't try to, to analyze what happened in the 10th century. Actually, the history of the fraud of Russian, of falsification of Russian history is only three centuries long. And you, you mentioned something I think is really important in the context of now what's happening with Russia's war against Ukraine, which is that President Putin, you know, believes in many of these myths, that he's internalized this idea that Ukraine is not even a real country, that its language is not real. And, and we saw this in essays that he wrote, very provocative, and I think most people felt very historically misguided and, and false 
essays he wrote before the invasion of Ukraine where you could sort of see him creating a context for this. So, so talk about the way that he's internalized this idea and deploys it. And, and you write in the book about a fascinating group of brothers too, the, um, the Kowalczyk brothers, who seem to have this tremendous influence over Putin's thinking, particularly about Ukraine. So talk a bit about those influences on him. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really interesting because we know that Yuri Kowalczuk is the closest friend of President Putin, uh, and he was the the person who spent the the 2020 um, COVID uh, lockdown with him. So he he's got the access to the body, and he is the most influential oligarch. But it's very important that he is originally his his surname is Ukrainian. He's originally Ukrainian. Uh, so he is supposed to know uh, best uh, everything about Ukrainian culture, and it's really it's really funny that his father was a very famous uh, Soviet academician. He was a historian, uh, and his specialization was the history of Crimea and uh, uh, Sebastopol. That, that is the uh, the most important Russian naval base uh, in the Black Sea. So um, actually, Kovalchuk, the the senior was the person who uh, who was writing all those um, heroic stories about uh, Sebastopol uh, as a Russian city. And uh, Kovalchuk family um, is the source of that um, concept that uh, Crimea is a sacred place for Russians. Uh, it's uh, something like, uh, you know, cradle of, uh, of Russian uh, military glory. Uh, it's it's very it's very interesting because uh, back in 2014, when um, uh, Putin when when Russia occupied Crimea, when uh, that operation started, it was a shock for many Russians. Uh, a lot of people did not expect that, and uh, even more, there was no popular demand for that. That was not widely discussed uh, in Russia, and like many people were really surprised. It's not. It's not like Kosovo and Serbia, you know. For for many Serbs, uh, Kosovo is a very is a very painful topic because they they are really speaking about that um, a lot. Uh, and Crimea was not important. Yeah, everyone knew, everyone uh, had an opportunity to travel to Crimea because that was a popular summer resort. But no one had had a real problem with that. So so no one wanted Crimea uh, Crimea back to Russia. So probably one of the few people. Uh, um, to sh to share that idea was President Putin, and for for many years uh, there was a question for 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 the journalists: um, what's what why 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 he was uh, so sure? What's the source of his uh, inner belief that Crimea should be should be Russian? So now we know that's that that's from Kovalchuk family. And you mentioned, I mean, Kovalchuk being this close personal friend. I mean, a genuine friend of, of President Putin, and spending this period in lockdown together. And we all remember the images of Putin sitting at the end of these incredibly long tables during meetings with his officials and the just extraordinary lengths he went to to protect himself from anyone else for fear of getting COVID. But Kovalchuk is this person who he is spending this time kind of in lockdown with. So do you think during that period of COVID lockdown is when basically Putin got the idea and formed the idea that he was going to completely invade Ukraine, which then leads to the war that he launched last year. Um, yeah, I'm sure that that he started preparing uh, for for this war during during COVID, 
I think that it was it was very gradual. I think they um, de definitely they had a plan uh, for much. Um, they they had the initial plan of uh, of Putin to take the Eastern Crimea uh, was being discussed at least si since uh, two thousand and eight because mm -hmm. we know that in the, in two thousand and eight he told to President George W. Bush uh, during the uh, NATO summit in Bucharest, uh, he said um, publicly that if Ukraine is going to join NATO, uh, it will join without uh, Crimea and the East. So mm -hmm. that, that that's the first time on the record he, he publicly announced that, that he was going to take uh, Crimea and the Eastern Ukraine. But um, gradually uh, his plans were changing and actually, yeah, COVID was, was uh, the, if not turning point, the very important important step because he was he really was isolated. He really um, um, uh, the the number of sources of his in, uh, information uh, has changed a lot, and he started relying a lot to the uh, to the imperial ambitions of uh, of Kolchuk, and at the same time of uh, on the information he he was getting from uh, another of his Ukrainian friend, Viktor Medvedchuk, who used to be many years ago the uh, the chief of staff of Ukrainian President Kuchma, but um, mostly known in um, in Ukraine and, and in Russia as uh, Putin's special um, representative in Ukraine, Putin's man in Ukraine, Putin's, uh, uh, he has not become the puppet ruler of, of, of Ukraine, but if Putin's plan uh, could have been fulfilled. And uh, if he had taken uh, Ukraine, uh, Kiev within three days, that's uh, Medvedchuk who would become the, the puppet president of, uh, uh, of Ukraine. So, so Kovalchuk and Medvedchuk were still um, able to talk to, uh, to Putin during COVID and they were uh, the, the, the most important sources of, uh, of his information um, about Ukraine. And then uh, there was a very important um, psychological blow uh, also uh, in 2020. Uh, there, there was, um, it was not a revolution, but it was almost a revolution in Belarus. Uh, the fact that uh, um, uh, Belar Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko was nearly on the throne uh, by the um, by the uh, Belarusian um, civil society, uh, by, by the popular uprising, um, made a very um, um, shocking. Mm. That th that that was a shock for, for for Vladimir Putin and proved to him that he needs to get rid of uh, uh, the current uh, Ukrainian president. He needs to do something to Ukraine because that's. That's a threat to his authority. That's a, a threat to his um, to him being in, in power. And actually, uh, the fact uh, th that he was really humiliated by by the leader of Russian opposition, Alexei Navalny, uh, with uh, his uh, documentaries about um, an attempt uh, of poisoning of uh, Alexei Navalny. That that was another. Uh, argument for the uh, full-scale invasion, and um, it's it's not a coincidence at the moment when Navalny was arrested in uh, in Russia, uh, the real um, propagandist preparation for the war has started. 
and Margarita Simonian, who is uh, head of RT, in famous RT TV channel, claimed that we need to take Crimea, uh, I'm sorry, Donbass back home. That was January 2021. So uh, they already knew in January 2021 that the war is going to happen. Right, and the propaganda is kind of being laid out there. I want to ask you about Navalny in a moment, but first let me ask you a question about President Zelensky in Ukraine. You know, on Monday, Ukrainian officials said that they had arrested a Russian informant allegedly involved with a plot to assassinate the president. Uh, it's believed that he has been targeted more than a dozen times in assassination attempts. I mean, clearly, as you just articulated here, President Putin is really fixated on, on trying to, to kill Zelensky, to remove him as the leader of Ukraine. Um, it seems, though, that his death would be unlikely to diminish the spirit of the people of Ukraine. They're going to keep fighting Russia. Um, so, you know, what is Putin's calculation, do you think, on why it's so important uh, when it seems like most of the Ukrainian people would only become rally stronger behind their country if the president were killed? You know, I, first of all, I think that uh, Putin rarely has a strategy. He's a tactical player. Mm. He's not a he's not a chess player. He's a surfer. So his strategy is uh, to wait and see. He doesn't have a strategic goal. He's got um, tactical issues, and normally his um, his choice is chaos. So he always thinks that the time is on his side when it's chaos. When he is successful in creating chaos. So uh, yeah, he he really thinks that. Uh, uh, um, Without Zelensky, um, the situation in Ukraine uh, might have been more chaotic. But he he was always wrong with Ukraine. He was uh, he really underestimated uh, Zelensky. He really uh, he really did not understand anything about uh, Ukrainian society, uh, about Ukrainian, um, um, about how how Ukrainians perceive themselves. He didn't understand th that. Ukraine has changed a lot during the uh, last 30 years. He, he just, he just don't get it. Um, he doesn't understand that, that uh, in Ukraine, that's already the third generation of politicians uh, since the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, because there were first generation of communist leaders, then there was generation of Komsomol leaders, that was young communist league in Soviet Union. Um, and for example, uh, Petro Poroshenko or Viktor Yushchenko or Prime Minister Timoshenko belong to that generation. They were not communists, but not uh, post-communists as well. And Zelensky is the third generation. He, he didn't spend much of his life in, uh, in, in Soviet Union. He, he was raised after uh, collapse of Soviet Union. He doesn't share the Soviet mentality. And most of uh, um, current Ukrainians, like uh, uh, Ukrainians are, um, the young nation. They do not consider themselves to be a Soviet or Russian colony, and Putin doesn't get it at all. So, so he is obviously wrong, uh, thinking that the, that Zelensky is the uh, solution uh, for his problem. Um, I hope everything uh, is going to be fine with with Vladimir Zelensky, but um, Putin d doesn't understand that that even eliminating Zelensky, he, he won't get it. Right. In just a few minutes we have left, there's a question from the audience about Alexei Navalny, who, of course, was just sentenced to another 19 years in prison. Uh, Wanda Collins of Georgia asks, 
What do you think will happen if Naval to, um, to Navalny, if Putin stays in power or is somehow removed from office? Is that a concern for most of the people in Russia right now? So what is the fate of Navalny depending on Putin? Oh, you know, it's impossible to predict anything anywhere. You know, um, I guess that, uh, yeah, in America, it's uh, it's easier to, to predict if Donald Trump is going to be indicted or not. Uh, <laughs> in Russia, it was, it was very easy to predict uh, what's what would going to be uh, the the prison the next prison term of Navalny his his prediction was uh, that he, um, he would be sentenced to uh, 18 years but that was 19 so so he um, but you know we we should hope and pray that uh, Alexei Navalny is as as all other Russian political prisoners we we, we know a lot about uh, Alexei Navalny uh, because he is an obvious political leader, and he has been the only politician for many years. But now we, we have thousands of uh, of political prisoners, thousands of Russians were arrested uh, last year and this year just for protesting against the war, just to uh, to stay, to saying that that they do not support this war, just for uh, going up uh, going to, to the street with a blank uh, sheet of paper. Um, and yes, we hope that uh, those all those people are safe and sound and healthy enough to outlive Putin. Because I'm absolutely sure that while Putin is in power, uh, there's going to be war against Ukraine and none of those people is going to be released. Unfortunately, we all understand that, that, that Alexei Navalny is in prison till uh, Putin's death. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to imagine what could happen after that but um, usually when when i uh, when i'm asked uh is there a scenario a worse scenario could it be worse when, when putin is gone uh you know yes everything could be worse uh but actually the worst and un uh, unimaginable worst case scenario was the beginning of the war uh Oh, the beginning of the full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine was the really nightmare scenario. So I cannot imagine what worse could happen uh, now. So I think it it would it could be better after Putin is gone. Yeah, and just in, and on the question of the war, we just have two minutes left. But I want to ask you this question, which I think is so important, particularly in the context of the presidential campaign we have coming up here in the U.S. A recent poll found that most Americans, 55%, actually oppose additional funding to support Ukraine. What would that mean for Ukraine if the United States cut off funding? Um, unfortunately, I think that that's, uh, that's Putin's strategy. As, I've, as I've, uh, I've said, his strategy is to wait. So, yeah, he's really expecting uh, that... Yeah. Um, after American presidential election, uh, uh, America would stop supporting Ukraine, and that would that would be a blow. That, that would be a blow to to Ukraine because uh, Putin is waiting for that. He's uh, there. There is some kind of a stalemate uh, uh, on the front line, uh, and he almost does nothing. But he still has got the plan to take Kiev. He still uh, has got the the, the plan to to start the new offensive, but he's going to wait uh, till the moment he, he's sure America stopped supporting Ukraine. And then 
I hope he will not um, leave to that point, but he hopes that uh, this moment will come and he is ready to strike again. Right. Well, we will all watch that very closely. And uh, in the meantime, for the history of all of this, it's so important people should read Mikhail Zigar's book, War and Punishment. Uh, Mikhail, thank you so much for joining thank us you. here today. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.